in life, one of the hardest things to do is to close something. What I mean by that is closure is hard for all of us, isn't it? When you come to like a closing on a house, uh, it it's, it's, can be very stressful as you're closing. Or maybe closing on a business deal. Or how about closing a relationship? That could be a, a really difficult task. Uh, all these things sort of are what I call the salad bowl of emotions that all get wrapped up, right? You get excitement, you get sadness, you get fear, you get anger, you get joy. They're all tossed together as you're trying to close something. So what is closure? Well, closure, according to Webster, is the act or process of finishing something, especially an institution, thoroughfare, frontier of something that is being closed. So when you close something, it's sort of the end. Uh, it's sort of the completion. And, and if you think about it, closing is more important than the beginning. Because when you close something, that is sort of the mark in which everything has already been completed. See, in a game, in sports, the end is, is, is extremely important. And that's where all the sense, uh, sort of the stress and, and sort of the anxiety come to the, uh, to the game, especially toward the very last thing. And if you're a baseball fan, you know how important a closer is. There's a whole title given to the very last person who comes in a pitcher to close out a game. Probably the most famous closer that many of you may have heard of is Mariano Rivera. Uh, he closed for the team called the Yankees. By the way, he was the only baseball player in the history of modern-day baseball that was unanimously voted in, uh, into the Hall of Fame. 425 ballots were cast, and he got a unanimous vote. First time ever in the history. But Mariano Rivera also happened to be a Christian. And he says something really interesting. His nickname, by the way, was the Sandman. He says, when I started thinking uh, about it and about his uh, baseball and to put it into perspective that I was able to dominate with just one pitch, all I have to say is that I'm grateful to the Lord. Rivera said, I have to thank the Lord for that because he was just amazing. I can't think of such a thing that can be possible but all things are possible with him. He was a great closer. Uh, the Dodgers have another closer named Kenley Jensen. Uh, he's also a believer as well. And, and, you know, one of the things about closing is if the guy comes in and he wins the game, he's the hero. But if he loses the game, he becomes uh, the, sort of the goat. Everybody uh, uh, blames the closer. Well, in sports, in relationships, in a job, uh, important is how you leave. How do you leave a job? And if you leave voluntarily, how do you leave it well? Well, sometimes when you close something, uh, you don't always close it well. Sometimes, you know, the worst kinds of books to read, or maybe even a movie, is when there is no closure. Have you ever watched a movie, and at the very end, you're like shaking your head and saying, what did I just watch? I just wasted two and a half hours of, of watching this thing, and I, I, I'm expecting resolution, but instead all I get is more questions. Uh, one of my favorite movies way back when was, was a movie called The Matrix. Uh, many of you have probably seen it. Most of you have probably seen it. Uh, and it's, it's a, a, a character named Neo. And Neo is sort of in this alternate reality. And we find out, if you've never watched it, that there's a lot of computers involved. Well, one of the things about Matrix, that was a great standalone movie. 
And then the writers and the producers decided to ruin it by making two additional episodes. And if you ever watch the third episode of, called Revolutions, you're shaking your head. It, it, it's, it sort of is at the, the end of the movie, you're left with a lot of fans confused because Neo gets caught into this matrix, this computer system. He is seemingly killed by Agent Smith, but the machine tried to revive him. However, instead of waking up, everything explodes into the light. The end. <laughs> if you watch that, you're saying, what is the meaning of this? Of course, you know, the writers say, well, you have to kind of reinterpret what's happening. But we want closure, don't we? We all want things to end, and we want things to end well, and if it doesn't end well, we're just left hanging. Well, in the final section of this letter, uh, Paul is now giving us closure. He's reminding us the importance of this book, and, and he's going to summarize this book in two words. And I think this is important because the bookends of this book really center around two concepts, and th the words are grace and peace. Notice what he says in chapter 1, verse 1. When Paul begins this letter, he says this. To the church of the Thessalonians, in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Now, this is important because this is how the ancients would write a letter. They would state their name and they would give a greeting, a salutation. But he begins by talking about grace and peace. And these are two distinct Christian concepts. Now, for those of us uh, who are new to this series, uh, Thessalonians is one of the most important books in the Bible because it is the first letter that Paul wrote. Um, the, the journey of going to Thessalonica was an interesting journey because Paul was doing his missionary work mostly in, uh, in Asia Minor, or what we would call modern-day Turkey. And he was just kind of floating around, going in circles, ministering to the churches. Then one day, in the middle of the night, he has a dream, Acts chapter 16. And an angel of the Lord wakes up Paul and says, Paul, I want you to go somewhere else. Instead of staying in Asia, I want you to go to this place called Macedonia. And this vision of the Macedonian uh, call comes. And in Acts chapter 16, Paul goes from Asia to Europe. And that's how the gospel continues to spread. And one of the first cities he visits is the city of Thessalonica. Now Thessalonica was an important city because it was the capital of that region in modern day Greece. By the way, it is still the second largest city in Greece. And it still exists. And this place was significant because this is what trading would happen. It is a very cosmopolitan city. And so when Paul went there, the first thing he would do is he would go to the Jewish synagogue, preach the gospel to the Jews. Because the Jews had the context of the Old Testament, he would preach about Jesus being the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But what would happen with Paul is he would get kicked out of the synagogues because some of the rabbis didn't like what he said, and so he went to the Gentiles. And this is what happened. The gospel began to spread to the Gentiles. And so in Thessalonica, the church began to grow and flourish. And so the government officials, the government leaders, and the Jewish leaders said, this is not a good thing. The, the Gentiles thought Paul was going to usurp the Roman Empire. Uh, for the Jews, they said, he, Paul is preaching heresy. So Paul is staying at a guy's, a guy's house named Jason, and they go to Jason's house, and Paul's not there. So they drag Jason to the city courts, and they said, this guy is, is the guy to blame. And I love the way uh, Acts chapter 17 describes these group of people that are sort of revolutionary. Uh, he says, these people are turning the world upside down. 
What a great way to describe Christians. That our mission and purpose is to turn the world upside down. And that's what these Christians were doing in this city. They had a brand new sort of ethical system. They had a whole new set of rules that they were following. A higher calling than Caesar Augustus. And so what ends up happening is, is uh, Jason is released, but they can't find Paul. Paul escapes, goes down to Corinth. And while he's in Corinth, which is a southern city, Paul sends one of his trusted uh, uh, disciples. His name is Timothy. So he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica, and he wants to know how they're doing. He's worried that because there's persecution happening, he doesn't know what's, what's going on. So Timothy goes... It may be a week, a couple of, maybe even a month's journey. He goes to Thessalonica and then comes back and reports to Paul what's happening. And instead of hearing bad news, the church is actually growing. It's thriving. They're actually doing well in the midst of persecution. And so Timothy has some questions. Uh, these people are asking Paul, so, so how do we live the Christian life when we're suffering? How do we live the Christian life when people are making false accusations? How do we live the Christian life when people have died? And so all these questions are the letter in which Paul is writing. So in Corinth, he pens the very first letter he's going to pen. And later on, he pens over 20 letters. And this is the very first book in the New Testament that Paul writes. That's why this is so significant. And so at the very end now, he's summarizing the key theme of what this whole book is about. And so if I were to summarize the, the sermon, it's really this. It's Paul's prayer. Our prayer for the present peace and grace is experienced when we place our hope in Christ's return and Christian community. There are two things that we're going to be focused on, grace and peace, or in this particular way, peace and grace. Notice what he says um, at the very end of this letter. He says, he begins in verse 23, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord. He begins with this God of peace. Remember the first two words, grace and peace? And then the very last words in verse 28 says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. God of peace, the grace of Jesus. And these two words really summarize what the Christian faith is all about. Peace and grace, or grace and peace. So let's go uh, look into the first point, and there's really only two points in the sermon. Point number one is this, that our present peace comes from relying on God's faithfulness for our holiness in Christ's return. Our present peace comes from relying on God's faithfulness for our holiness in Christ's return. Notice what he says in verse 23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. Sort of like this idea of, of putting dirty laundry into a laundry machine, and you're just rinsing everything. That's what God does. He sanctifies us. He cleans us through and through every single aspect of our being. May your whole spirit, body, soul, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Now, the first thing I want to highlight is this, the word peace itself. In the Hebrew, the word peace is shalom. Now, if you have Jew Jewish friends or have known of Jewish friends, uh, it, it's a very common greeting. You know, how we say hello, uh, they would say shalom. And shalom in Hebrew was, was more than just a greeting. It was actually a word that defined their whole theology. Uh, the word shalom 
in, in our definition of peace, we think of peace as absence of conflict. So if you and I are not getting along and we you know, want to have peace, well, we just stay away from each other. Or, or two countries are not getting along. And, and so the way they have peace is just ignore each other. Well, the Hebrew idea of shalom was not about the absence of conflict. It wasn't an external thing. The, the, the meaning of peace, actually in the Hebrew, the root idea means to be safe in mind, body, and estate. It was the idea of complete wholeness. So if you think about peace, it was this inner peace or this inner fulfillment, inner fullness that responded back by being generous and kind to others. So the biblical idea of shalom has this inward sense of completeness or wholeness. If you think about it, when somebody says to you, shalom, say, they're saying, may you be full of well-being or may health and prosperity be with you. That's, that's the idea of shalom. So now, Paul is saying this. That the prayer for the Thessalonians, the first prayer is this. May the God of peace sanctify you. So how does peace happen? How does this wholeness happen with our mind, body, and, and our total being? And here's the first thing, is we have peace when our whole life is sanctified. We have peace when our whole life is sanctified. And it happens through the process of transformation. That peace comes through sanctifi- uh, by sanctification through transformation. So we live in a world where there's a lot of anxiety. Uh, I, I read recently online that Amazon has a way of tracking, uh, you know, every Kindle that they sell and the underlying things that, that people look at. In one particular uh, study they did, one of the first things that people underlined when it came to, like, biblical reading was worry, anxiety, peace. If you think about it, everybody wants peace. You know, uh, especially in, in, in uh, growing up in America, where we have every convenience available, there's a sense of discontentment. There's a sense of anxiety. Depression is on a high, high, uh, all-time high. So how does inner peace happen? And this is where we have to see that the Christian idea of peace is very different than the world's definition of peace. Because the world defines peace by saying, get rid of all the things that you don't like to do. And then you'll have peace. The biblical idea is no. Peace is not about that. It's about a transformation. It's about an inward transformation that begins from your mind, it goes to your heart, and it goes to ultimately your, to your whole body. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says this, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, our physical is out, uh, wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. That the peace of God comes when every aspect of our inward being is transformed by the gospel of God. And so in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That every aspect, our total being, inward being, the way we think, our attitudes, our emotions, our thought life are all changed by the Holy Spirit. And what the process that, 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 by the way, the Greek word for transformation is the Greek word for metamorphosis. It's the same word. So when you think of metamorphosis, what do you think of? Uh, I know for me, I think of about a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. Uh, by the way, National Geographic had an interesting 
uh, analysis of how a caterpillar turns into a, a, a butterfly. So before, the way you would sort of examine it is you would almost have to kill the, the butterfly uh, or the caterpillar. So at, at different points, as they're in their cocoon, you slice it open and you get to see that. Well, now with modern technology, we have these new micro CT scans that show how metamorphosis takes place. And it's fascinating because there's a lot of spiritual application. Metamorphosis is the radical change of both form and function. Many animals that go through this process, like frogs, sea urchins, wasps, beetles, but most of us know about a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. Scientists are now beginning to wrap the uh, uh, miracle of what they call of this whole process. Research shows that an insect's makeover is a mix of two things. A mix of destruction of old ways of being and thinking combined with a brand new way of being and thinking. In other words, in that cocoon, there's a death that takes place. They're literally dying. And a new mind and a new body is forming. And that's exactly how the Spirit of God works in our life. That when we become a follower of Jesus, the peace of God then that transforms us is that we recognize, number one, that there's a relationship with God, and then that relationship with God changes fundamentally who we are. So the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore, of 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has died and the new has come. You know, you think about that. The article continues, a certain cells die and the body parts atrophy. Meanwhile, cells in place since birth rapidly expand. Adults emerge, completely remodeled, capable of flight. The only means by which we can truly be changed and transformed as people is the Holy Spirit. In other words, when, when the peace of God comes upon you, that's why he says in this verse, may the God of peace sanctify you completely, your mind, your body, your soul, everything, because that's the work that the Holy Spirit does. So we become different people when we trust and follow Jesus. So... Are there habits in your life that you want to change? Well, you know, you could try <laughs> to change on yourselves. But what ends up happening with like, like any diet is that you revert back to your old ways. The only transformation that ultimately lasts is a dying of ourselves and giving birth, the resurrection of our new self. You know, one of the most beautiful parts of that is the whole, the, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not our job. And this is the great thing about what Paul is saying. May God of peace so fill your hearts and your minds and your attitudes and your actions that you come out not a caterpillar, but you come out as a butterfly. And so the role of the Holy Spirit is the agent in which that transformation takes place. And he does it by not only empowering us, but also pointing to us the areas that we need to change. So the role of the Holy Spirit is also conviction. The Holy Spirit, you know, it's like some of us, uh, I remember growing up, I used to think, oh, I have to change to become a Christian. No, no that's not the way you change. You change as you become a follower of Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit comes in you and reminds you of things that you need to change. And those little things begin to change, your attitudes, your actions. Um, I, I heard a, a great story told by uh, Matt Chandler, who's a pastor in uh, Dallas, Texas. He came home one day to see his son on the chair uh, playing his Xbox. And so uh, Matt Chandler uh, said to his uh, son, 
uh, instead of playing Xbox, your job is to clean because everybody in that household had a chore. And his son's chore was to vacuum the house. So after asking his son to clean his room, uh, you know, after he paused to clean his room and start his other main chores, uh, he goes, as soon as I stop, uh, <laughs> his job, uh, the father's job was to unload the dishwasher. He goes, I heard him turn on the vacuum for about 45 seconds. Reed, uh, and he, he reported uh, the boy, his name is Reed, came back and said, Dad, I'm done. And, and the dad said, you vacuumed the whole house? <laughs> and, and the boy said, uh-huh. He says, son, Superman could not have vacuumed this house in 45 seconds. He goes, I did, Dad. So I, he goes, I did what any loving father would do. I grabbed my son by the arm, so let's go walk around the house. So he, we walked around the house, and over in this corner, there was an entire bag of goldfish crackers. Like someone had intentionally dumped them and danced them on the floor. I said, Reed, did you vacuum that? And the boy said, I didn't see it. <laughs> okay, but it's on the floor. You're supposed to vacuum the floor. I don't know how you missed this. So we vacuumed, and we walked around, and I showed him the obvious things that he failed to see. It reminded me of the line in the Gospel of John when Jesus says, we will make our house with you because that is what the Holy Spirit has done for us. And I said, you know what? The way in which we change partly is that the Holy Spirit begins to convict us and say, you know what? That's not right. Before, maybe we've grown up and say, well, you know, I... I that's right. I, maybe you can't cheat. Maybe you can't steal. Maybe you could do this or that. And the Holy Spirit says, no, that's wrong because you're not sanctified. That doesn't help you. That doesn't create a holiness. It doesn't make you look like Jesus. And so what ends up happening is that the Holy Spirit becomes the agent to help us understand what needs to change. And secondly, he becomes the agent that causes the change to happen. So from a, butter, from a caterpillar to a butterfly is the work of sanctification. But here's the next thing that's important. He says this, is that we can have peace because we can rely upon God's faithfulness. Notice what he says in verse uh, 24. <clears throat> the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. I love how he ties those two ideas together. That peace comes from the understanding that God is the one changing us. And so we have inner peace instead of anxiety. Instead of worry, we have uh, uh, a sense of security. But then he says the reason that you can change is because of the nature and character of God. And the nature and character of God is faithfulness. The one who calls you is faithful. And then he, he says, and he will do it. One of the things about peace is the sense in which we trust that God will keep his promises. So faithfulness allows us to understand the very nature of even God's promises in the Old Testament. What God has promised, he will fulfill because that is the very nature of God himself. Deuteronomy 7.9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. The very basis of the Old Testament covenant, the very basis of the promise of God was on the faithfulness of God. And here's the thing that Paul is saying. The reason that we change, the reason we can have peace is because God will do it. He keeps his word. And I think living in a a changing society where you can't trust anything, there's one thing 
one person you can trust, and that's, that's God himself. And that understanding causes us to have peace. You know, one of my favorite uh, children's books is one of Dr. Seuss's books that many of you probably not, may not have heard of. Uh, a few years ago, another, uh, a book was ma- uh, another movie was made called Horton Hears the Who. You, many of you probably have seen it. If you have little kids, I guarantee you'll probably see it at some point. And it's a, it's a great movie. It's about an elephant, right, uh, who, who uh, hears little voices. And nobody sees those little voices. And there's a lot of spiritual analogy to that. And he protects this little world of, of, of the Who's. That's one of the books. But there's another, actually, companion book called Horton uh, Hatches an Egg. Now, this book is great because it is a wonderful story about this same elephant named Horton. And one day, uh, a lazy bird named Maisie was sitting in a, on her egg on a tree. And sitting on the egg was tiresome for this uh, uh, bird, and she didn't want to do it anymore even though it was her egg. So she says to Horton, Horton, can you sit on my egg for me? Uh, I'm just going to go on a quick errand. I'll be right back. So he sits on the egg, and... Maisie takes off on vacation. And Horton never moves out of that uh, branch. He's sitting on it. And so she goes off to Florida for vacation. She does all these other things. And somebody comes up to Horton and says, Horton, why are you sitting there? He goes, I'll stay on this egg and I won't let it freeze. I meant what I said and I said what I meant. An elephant is faithful 100%. Well, the whole story revolves around that. Eventually, uh, the circus puts uh, this elephant on tour just sitting on an egg because it's so unusual for an elephant to sit on the egg. Eventually, uh, Maisie comes back. She wants her egg back. And then the egg hatches, and it becomes a flying elephant just like (laughs) Horton. And I say, that's a great illustration of transformation. But it's a great illustration of the faithfulness of that elephant. And in the same way, God has been faithful to us. He never lets go of us. And I think that gives me peace. You know, my friends are going to disappoint me. My, my, the people that I love may betray me. People may hurt me. All these things that go to our mind. But I have peace knowing that God is faithful. He will transform me. He will trans- change me into the person that he wants me to be. So rather than becoming bitter, resentful, vengeful, we have inner peace. And so that's the first prayer. He closes this letter to tell the Thessalonians, no matter what the external world tells you, no matter persecutions, death comes, no matter false accusation comes, remember this, that God will give you peace because he'll change you from the inside and he's faithful. But the second thing he says is he moves from God to the Christian community. And he says this, and I love how he um, uh, talks about the second word, grace. The very last thing he says is about this community. In verse 25, brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with the holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. And then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. He moves from God's work to the work of of, of Christian community. As I looked at this passage, it struck me. That in this passage is really the definition of what a Christian community looks like. If you live in a world right now, we live in the 21st century where we have access to anybody almost at any time. And yet we are the most disconnected generation. 
that even though we post things on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, whatever, we are still so disconnected. And that disconnectedness is creating isolation, and that isolation is creating depression and anxiety and darkness of our souls. So Paul says, what we as Christians need is community. You know, for some of us, even as Christians, we think, oh, why even go to church on Sunday? I could just uh, look at Facebook Live and just watch a sermon. I could listen to Hillsong or Bethel or some of these other Christian songs and sing the same songs that we're singing at church. Why do I need Christian community? Well, science has told us that community gathering in in groups is actually healthy for the well-being of the individual. Uh, I I shared this uh, article a few months ago regarding uh, even going to emergency care. Uh, England has had a dramatic fall in emergency uh, hospital admissions simply because of a new project called what they call the New Collective Project. And the source of this medical breakthrough was, was surprising. Get people with other people in community, and the more communal they are, the healthier they became. It reduced their anxiety. It reduced their sense of isolation. Community uh, project was launched in 2013, and what they began to see is a reduction of health problems. So even the secular world knows that you need to gather in groups to be healthy. So the question is this. What makes a Christian community distinctive? What does it mean for us to gather here on Sunday? Does it really matter? And the answer to this is absolutely. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, 25, the writer of Hebrews says this, let us consider one another in order to how to stir one another for loving good works, not forsaking the gathering together of ourselves as is, is in the manner of some, but exhorting one another as you see the day of the Lord approaching. In other words, because Jesus is coming back, do not forsake the gathering together. Now, of course, they didn't have the internet back then, or whatever, but they still could just sit at their, uh, you know, at their house by themselves and just pray. Why do we need to gather together? The word forsake is important. He's not talking about missing one Sunday or not. What he's talking about is isolating yourself, removing yourself, deserting community. And you know, the first way I I could tell when a Christian who has been a believer at one point, who's fallen away, rejecting God, rejecting Christ, oftentimes it comes at the point in which they transition, they desert the Christian community. In other words, where they think they're sort of better than others, or maybe they don't need others. There's something powerful of us, of us gathering together. There are three things that happen in this passage. Number one, when we gather in community, we can pray for each other. Physically pray for each other. And prayer is one of the most important things you can do. If you think about it, of course you can give a prayer request, but there's something miraculous and powerful when people gather together in prayer. You know, If you look at a definition of what a pastor and an elder does, there are two things that pastors and elders are are called to do. Hold the Word of God, teach the Word of God, and number two is to pray for the people. So in James chapter 5, there's a verse that says, when you are sick, call the elders of the church to come to anoint with olive oil, and then the prayer done in faith will heal that person. There's something about the nature of prayer that when we pray together... So, you know, one of the things that our elders have done that many of you may not even know of, 
is that almost every Sunday, somebody is scheduled to be prayed over. So before a service, whether it's here at Brea or at Anaheim, all the elders gather together to lay hands on prayer. Last week, we prayed for one of the former elders of the church who was diagnosed with a disease, and he's in a uh, sort of like a wheelchair, and, and he didn't know what was going on. And so he said, he called us to pray. And so we gathered together in prayer. And one of the most beautiful, powerful things of Christian community is when we pray together, we begin to see the Holy Spirit at work in that community. I've had people that we've prayed for this past year come to us, say, Pastor Ray, I just want you to know, one woman had an eye disease and says, I, I, a brain uh, tumor, and now it's gone. Another woman oh, it was, uh, was going through cancer and said, would you pray for us? And, and she told us last week that she's now cancer-free. Now, it doesn't mean that God's going to heal every person. That's not the point. The point is this, that when we pray, we are supporting each other. And there's something powerful about a community that prays with each other and for each other. Because when you pray, you're sharing your deepest needs and deepest pains. And that brings intimacy. Je uh, Jeffrey Hall, a communication professor at University of Kansas, recently published a report between the relationship of time invested to friendship closeness. So here's a lesson for all of you who want to be good friends with somebody. In general, Hall found that it took 40 to 60 hours to form a casual friendship. So if you're with somebody, you, you, you want to spend 40 hours with somebody, you can form a casual friendship. Moving from casual friends to friends required 80 to 100 hours. Moving from good uh, friend to good and best friend took between 160 hours to 200 hours. In other words, this is the research. Time spent together was a key predictor of friendship closeness. That just makes sense, right? That the more time you spend together, the more close you become. But one thing that actually lowered closeness was not just the amount of time, but if you hung out together um, and, and just was very superficial, that actually decreased intimacy. The more time spent hanging out without an agenda predicted higher closeness. In other words, the way you become friends with somebody is you hang outside of church. You go out and do something together. And the more you reveal, not only just kind of how's the weather, but you start revealing about your challenges, struggles, and you start praying for each other, you actually become closer together. Isn't that true in relationships? How do you become close to somebody? You don't be, become close by just sharing what common team you have. You share the pain and the problems that you have. And the more you're able to do that, and that's why prayer brings intimacy with each other, but it also brings intimacy with God, and the same principle applies. That the more you pray, the more intimate you become with God. The more you share your pain and problems to God himself, the more God becomes close to you. But there's a second part. There are three keys. Prayer, affection, and then thirdly, uh, is study. But the second thing, affection, is, 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 is another part of what Christian community is distinctive. Affection is the idea of, he says here in this passage, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. 
Now, some of you are thinking, if I did that, I'm going to get sued, okay? This is not a good thing in our society where if you just want, walk, walked up to somebody and just kissed them. You probably wouldn't want to do that in our society. But what he's talking about is that in the Middle East, even today, in certain cultures like the Philippines or South America, people give kiss on the cheek. That's just a normal way of saying, uh, uh, you know, hello. It's, it's, it's a sign of affection, sign of a new friend. What Paul is talking about is this. When Christians gather together, it should be the most affectionate place. It should be a place that, it's not just a, a man, you know, hey, hi, how are you? We'll see you next week. It's a place in which we give each other a hug. Uh, if you've ever been to an African-American church, uh, when I was in Dallas Seminary, a friend of mine was on staff of this large African-American church, and he would invite me. First time going there, people would just give me a hug. People I never ran, people, people would just walk around the hall and just people give me a hug. And there's something about the nature of physical touch that makes things more affectionate, more caring. Um, one man said this, when was the last time you experienced affection at church? True affection. For many Christians, a handshake as you're leaving Sunday has become the norm. We don't expect anything more from each other because we've seen that's how we've been taught to, not to express of too much affection. All of this is an effort to remain virtuous. However, I think we've stepped over the line and used this as an excuse or maybe even to justify our fear. Removed almost all affection in our communities. There is a problem. In our good attempt to keep ourselves uh, pure, we've actually relegated the church to an icebox that misses the big part of the heart of God. Whether we give each other a hug or not, some of you are, you know, maybe that's not your thing, but how do you demonstrate care for each other, affection toward each other? It's more than just seeing each other on Sunday, but getting engaged in each other's lives. But there's a third thing that helps us have a unique, distinctive part of Christian community, and that's studying the Word of God together, studying the Bible together. He says this in the next verse, in verse uh, 27. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. By the way, this is the first time Paul is actually writing a letter to a particular church. And I'm not sure if Paul knew this. I, I don't think the Thessalonians really understood what was happening. But God was now recording his revelation to the church for the rest of its existence. In other words, the reading of this letter, Paul says, is make sure you do it together. Study this letter over and over again. It is the idea of knowing and understanding God's word. There's nothing more important for us as a Christian community to gather in groups to study God's word. That's what we do on Sundays. We're hearing God's word being preached. That's what we do in our small groups. But don't just use small groups on Sunday morning. Get involved in other things as well. I love how many things that our church has opportunities to gather in studying God's word. We have men's breakfast. We have uh, women's retreat. We have BSF. We have all these different things. And the more you gather together to study together, the more you grow. The biggest myth that we as Christians have is that we only grow by ourselves. The only way we could truly grow in Christian community is to study together. And that's what we mean by discipleship. Discipleship is the transference of being together in relationship where we're studying God together. So do you have a mentor in your life? Do you have a disciple? Are you discipling somebody? If we're all doing that, 
we are demonstrating the joy of Christian community. So what makes Christian community different than the world's community is. The world's community may center upon something that, that may be a common sports team or activity. We are focusing on something that is eternal. And what brings us together is prayer, affection, and the Word of God. You know what ends up happening when we do that? The church begins to thrive. The church begins to grow. And the world sees the church as a safe place. I said at the very beginning that the most important thing that we can have is good closure. It's to end well. And the way in which grace is demonstrated is in the context of community. Because God has demonstrated great to, grace to us. Now we get to extend grace to one another by prayer, by affection, and by study. I like what Paul says at the very end. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course and I have kept the faith. Wouldn't all of us at the very end of our life finish the race and win? Maybe if we don't win, just to finish the race. The worst thing that can happen is you run 23 whatever miles in a, in a marathon and you get to the finish line and just before you get to the finish line, the, the, the judge says, no, you're disqualified. Paul says this in another passage in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, every ex, uh, athlete exercises self-control. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we are, are pursuing an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not beat the air, but I, I discipline my body. Keep it under control lest after I preach to others, I myself may be disqualified. Paul's greatest concern for himself was that he was going to do this great thing for God, and at the end of his life, God said, nah, you're disqualified. What's so sad about Christians is that many of us who have grown up in the church, or many of us who have known people who have grown up in the church, that are no longer walking with God. And at some point in their life, they walked away from community. They walked away from God. According to uh, former uh, professor Howard Hendricks at Dallas Seminary, he says there are over 100 leaders in the Bible. Two-thirds of those leaders in the Bible did not finish well. Only one-third finished well. I know many pastors, many seminary students, many people that were, were following at one point Jesus, but now have sort of rejected him and they've gone their own way. And to me, the saddest thing is this, that they are missing out on the fullness and the blessing of God. And so I want to encourage you to finish well. Because the thing that, that encourages me about the church is this, that we have people in this church that have walked longer than you have walked. There's a man named Dan Kimmel, who's a pastor in Santa Cruz, and he reaches a lot of young uh, people in his church. And when you walk into his office, he has three photographs. These three photographs are three men in his life. They're all 80 and 90-year-old people. One is uh, an 83-year-old pastor from England named Stuart Allen. Another is a 90-year-old man named Dr. Mitchell. Another is his 80-year-old father-in-law that he met with Dan every Wednesday night in a mentoring role when he was first starting the Bible study. He looked at these three men and he said this, they finished well. These are the guys that made it out their entire lives. We need to be honoring people with gray hair and more. We're so into pouring, into promoting the young that what people, that we have failed is to 
celebrate what God has done. So this book is, is closed now. Who are the people that you're following after? I, I made this uh, comment in Anaheim. We don't have a lot of older people here as much as, as in Anaheim. Uh, there was a man named Leonard. A few weeks ago, he passed. He was 101 years old. But there are other people in the church there that are in their 80s and 90s that are coming to church every Sunday, faithful. These are the men and women that we celebrate. And so as we close this book, remember this. There are two things that sets us apart. We have peace of God and we have the grace of Jesus Christ. Let those two things be the building block of your life because if those things are embedded into our lives, guess what happens? Not only are we changed, but the community around us changes. Our families change. Our cities change. Our culture ultimately can change. There's no, no, nothing more powerful when the church of God becomes the church and acts like the church of God. Let's pray.